Over these, uh, for the course of 2018, we've been focused on this idea of dwelling, and we had been in the book of Acts, and then each of the last two weeks we took a break from Acts, but we're still focused on this idea of dwelling. I wonder, who here uses the word dwell in their common vernacular? I can only think of a couple of instances where we use it. Here at church, we say that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, right? Okay, but outside of church, I was just trying to come up with areas, ways that we use the word dwell. And sometimes we call people city. Do you have one, Diana? Dwelling. Yeah, but we normally, what do we call it? Their home, right? I mean, let's be real. So what we normally, we might say, oh, that person is a city dweller right, as compared to a suburbanite. So that's one common way. I find myself using it in this way. What am I dwelling on? Can you relate? What is my mind dwelling on? We had dinner a couple weeks ago with Tyler and Melissa Carroll and Melissa's brother Everett, and, and Everett said that his mom used to say to him, don't dwell on that. Don't dwell on that, right? Isn't that the way we commonly think about the word dwell? Well, now let me ask you, when you use the word dwell in the context of what you're thinking about, are you thinking about things that bring you great joy? Are you thinking about those things that you're excited about that you can't wait for? All right, sometimes we do, right? Been really busy at work. We want to take a vacation. That vacation is out there. And what do we start doing? Oh, oh, the mountains of Sedona. I cannot wait. I pull the pictures up on the web. Yeah, that's where I'm going. That's where I'm going. But that is a brief interlude. Then I go back to having my mind dwell on something. What are you dwelling on? What are you dwelling on? Generally speaking, what we dwell on with our minds are the things that aren't good. We dwell on our work. Who here dwells on their work? And when you stop dwelling on it, if for any moment you might stop dwelling on it, you can reach into your pocket and pull this out, and sure enough, somebody's going to help you dwell on your work. Right? Or we dwell on relationships. And typically, the relationships we're dwelling on, we're not dwelling on them. Okay, maybe when, when I was first wooing Nancy, right? Oh, Nancy is so awesome. She's so wonderful. And, and it's true, she is. But when I dwell on relationships today, or when we dwell on relationships today, typically they are the relationships that aren't going so well. I'm dwelling on what's going on with my kid. Anybody dwell on what's going on with their kid? The pain that those kids go through? The stress kids are under today? Doing homework around the clock? The stress of, am I going to get into college? The stress of, if I can get into college, can I actually afford to go? Can mom and dad afford to send me there? The stress of, if I don't go to college, what am I going to do? The stress of being an outsider. We dwell. Is it just me? Or do we dwell on these things all the time? They are consuming our minds. 
And they are disrupting our thoughts of God. You see, we are so focused on dwelling on the things that are making us crazy that we make God small and our problem big. And this morning what I want to do is I want to take you through Psalm 77. And we're going to go slowly. But I hope at the end of this, you will be equipped to know how to stop dwelling. Let, let, let me ask you this. Is it helpful when you're dwelling on something? A relationship, your kids, your job. I, miss, I left out some things. Your health. I mean, anybody want to volunteer some? What are you dwelling on? Your future, the future, this nation, where is it going? Teetering on the brink of anarchy, you know, all of this stuff. Where's the world going? And when you start dwelling on those things, how do you feel? Say it out loud, I can't hear you. Discouraged? What else? Overwhelmed? What else? Anxious? What's, keep coming. Grumpy. Not in control. Not in control. I'm thinking of one other word, though. Somebody's got to have it. Who said it? Trapped. Thank you. Trapped. We can feel trapped by what's going on in our minds. God has a key. Are you familiar with the book Pilgrim's Progress? We may, if I can remember to do it later, talk about a part of Pilgrim's Progress where Pilgrim, the, the Pilgrim, his name is Christian and his good friend Hopeful are making this pilgrim from the city of destruction to the celestial city, to heaven itself. It's an allegory and they are in a castle and they're being beaten by a giant whose name is Despair and they forget that they have the key to the dungeon to free them. All right. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to open up the scriptures. We're going to open up Psalm 77. If you have your Bible, please open it. And just walk through and allow God's word to soak over you. Because I want you to see that, that pain is real. Like you people who yelled out something, overwhelmed, trapped, discouraged, whatever. This is part of the human condition. And what we can do as modern day Christians who live in a nice society, who live in a fairly well-to-do area, that we can start to feel guilty because we have these thoughts. Have you noticed that? And you can open up the Psalms and you can read about King David and you can be like, wow, now King David, he went through some stuff. So by comparison, I'm not going through anything. And therefore, since I'm not going through anything, I shouldn't feel this way. And therefore, since I shouldn't feel this way, I'm wrong. And therefore, because I'm wrong, I'm going to heap condemnation and on my head. Is it just me? Is it just me? Thank you. I appreciate that. This is the human condition. And the psalm that we're going to look at this morning was not written by King David. It was written by a man named Asaph. Who here knows who Asaph is? Who knows who Asaph is? Asaph, come on. He was the worship leader for David, for King David. And we're going to see that he went through some stuff. And here's the beauty of it. We're never going to know what it is that he went through that prompted him to write this psalm. I'm so grateful to God that that's true. Because when we read the things of King David, we can try to piece together in the Bible, oh, that's what was going on. And so we can see it and then we can start heaping guilt upon ourselves because we don't go through anything quite that bad. 
But with Asaph, we don't know. He's just a normal dude who sings in the temple. He's a Levite. He sings in the temple. And he plays the cymbals, an instrument even I think I can play. All right, so open up to Psalm 77, would you? And we're going to start with the first few verses. And I want you to know pain is real. Pastor Bruce, who is Ross's pastor, was here last year. Sometime he was filling in for, for Ross. And he said, he made this point. I don't know if you guys remember this, but he said, we all feel pain. Don't trivialize it. Do you remember when he said that? It wasn't exactly those words. but And I was like, oh, no, no, I trivialize mine. I trivialize mine. Remember the heap the, heap the coals, beat yourself up? But it is true, we all feel pain. It is part of the human condition. It is part of the human experience, even for those of us who know God and know him intimately. And God is going to share with us a beautiful way that we can stop dwelling on our troubles and start dwelling on the goodness of God. You ready? Let's do it. Psalm 77, verse 1. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. Do you hear that? My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. And then your Bible should have a little word there that says Salah or Selah. Amazingly, as often as that little word appears in the scriptures, people don't exactly know what it means. But what we think that it means is it is a call, a reminder to pause and reflect upon what you just read. And so let's do that. Let's pause and reflect on what we just read. Is Asaph having a good day? In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. You know what that really is an indication of? He's praying with his arms up like this. And he says, they're not getting numb. He is desperate. He is crying aloud to God. And no matter how hard he prays, no matter how long he prays, it's not changing. His mind continues to dwell on the trouble. And if you even bring God up to him, verse 3, when I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. How many of you have been going through something that has just been crazy hard? Hey, brother. Take every thought captive. You got it? Good. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called to his purpose. Called according to his purpose. You good now? Good. You got it? Hey, uh, praying for you. And then he disappear. And in a sense, in the midst of our pain, it can be so bad that when somebody says something like that to us, it makes things worse, not better. Because then you start wondering, do they even think this is real? Do they not see my pain? Do they not know that what I'm going through right now? Don't they experience pain? And then you start the thing all over again. It's just me. Woe is me. And I despair. No, 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 Asaph is saying that this is part of the condition of who we are, that it is true that sometimes things can get so bad, or at least we can make them seem to be so bad, that we will dwell on them. And God is trying to get our attention to say, I'm bigger. 
All right, we're going to move now to verse 4. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. And just just out of curiosity, I'm going to pause there. What do we do when we're so troubled? Anybody have a shortage of speaking? What do we call it? Complaining, moaning, groaning, whining to anyone who will listen. And by the way, we drive people away when we do that, do that, don't we? I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. And I want you to hear what Asaph is going to do and what he's instructing us to do. It's really, it's really pretty awesome. Will the Lord spurn forever? He's going to ask these five questions. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? He asks these five really simple questions, and I'm going to encourage you after the service at some point tonight or this week, I want you to read those questions over and again and read them out loud and listen to your own voice inflection. Because when you start to ask those questions, that very first one from verse 7 is really, God, are you good? He's trying to understand the character of God. And isn't it true that when our minds are dwelling on things that we think are so bad that we start to doubt the good character of God? Don't we do that? God, are you still good? Has your steadfast love forever ceased? What does God say he is? First John, God is what? Love. Has your steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? In other words, God, can you be trusted? Are you trustworthy? I'm in the midst of something really hard, Lord. And as a friend of mine told me yesterday, I am doing what I thought you told me to do and I can't find you in it. Can I trust you? Have you, O oh God, forgotten to be gracious? Have you in your anger shut up your compassion? I'm so grateful for Jesus. When Asaph wrote this, Jesus had not yet come. And so that for those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ, we can say for certain that God is good. We know it. The prophet Ezekiel prophesied that a savior would come and he would be the what kind of shepherd? The good shepherd. And then we wonder, can he, will God love? Will his love cease? And how does he show his love for us? That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Are his promises at an end for all time? Has he forgotten to be gracious? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not of yourself, it is a gift of God so that no one may boast. It is grace that is God's very character. And his compassion... Do you remember Jesus looks out over the crowds and what does he see? A whole bunch of people. What, when you look out over a crowd, what do you see? A whole bunch of people. Oh, I got to get through that? 
that mob, <laughs> they're between me and where I need to go. Somebody could be a terrorist in there and ready to blow a bomb up. What are those people doing? Like we look at crowds suspiciously or with disdain. Jesus looked at them and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And that is the character of God. And as you start to pause and reflect on those truths, all of a sudden you realize that you can answer those questions. Has God stopped being good? No. Has he stopped being trustworthy? No. Has he stopped his steadfast love? No. Stopped his grace? No. Stopped his compassion? No. And you can see we move into the very next section. Verse 10, Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. And watch this. He's going to transition from the character of God to the action of God. If I make a promise to you, if you don't know me from Adam and I make a promise to you, do you have any idea whether I'm going to fulfill it? Candidates run for elective office all the time. And then what do they run on? The strength of their words. And then they go and cheat on their wives. Wait a second, I'm supposed to trust your word and you gave your word to that woman, but you, you, you tracking with me? Like, God is not like us. God can be trusted and he's going to show us not only by his words and his character, but by his actions that he can be trusted, that he is good and that he loves us. And he is full of grace and he has compassion. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work. Ah, did you hear it? I will ponder. I will think. I will consider. What have our minds been dwelling on? Our troubles. That job. That boss. That spouse. That kid. That drug. My health. We've been pondering all over on these other things. And finally, as we contemplate the character of God, we move into his actions, we ponder him. Listen to how the psalmist changes in his approach and his attitude. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. Do you see it? Do you see the transition? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. What has he done for Jacob? Do you remember who Jacob is? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the son who ran off, tried to marry the woman he loved, only to be snookered and discover he married the woman he loves, sister. Awkward, right? Finally gets to marry the woman he loves, still has to work for his father-in-law, the cheat. Finally makes a break from his father-in-law, Laban. And as he's running away from Laban, he learns that his brother Esau is coming toward him. And do you remember how he cheated his brother Esau out of the blessing? Not once, but twice. And all of a sudden, Jacob feels, what was that word? Trapped. He can't go back because Laban's coming after him. He can't go forward because Esau, his brother, is coming after him. He thinks Esau is going to kill him. And by God's grace, what happens? Esau greets him. 
Esau greets him and does not have revenge upon him. God did something awesome in Esau to protect his own child, Jacob. Joseph is mentioned. What happened to Joseph? Do you remember Joseph? Joseph, the, fa- the, the favorite son of Jacob, got this beautiful coat of many colors and all of Jacob's brothers. How did, they f- how did his older brothers feel about him? Were they crazy about him? They hated him. And some of them wanted to kill him. So they grabbed him, stripped him of his clothes, threw him in a pit, put blood on his fancy, fancy coat, took his coat back to their dad and said, hey, your boy's dead. Meanwhile, they sold their brother into slavery and he's on his way to Egypt. And what is Joseph? Trapped. Moving forward, he's going into slavery in Egypt. Moving back, his brother's who hate him and some of whom want to kill him. But the psalmist remembers these things and says, that's not the end of the story. That's not the end of the story. Just like I said, Jacob was liberated. Esau did not kill Jacob, but greeted him with love. And Joseph went through many trials. You may recall that he was a slave in Potiphar's house, that Potiphar's wife tried to frame him. He was imprisoned for a long time, seven years as I recall unjustly, and God finally, when the time was right, lets him out and elevates him to be second in command of all of Egypt, to save Egypt and ultimately to save the nation of Israel through a drought and a famine. And do you see how the psalmist, as he's walking through these memories, as he's looking back, I used to have a friend of mine, when I'd go through trouble, he'd always say, Dan, look up, Dan, look up, and that's only partly right. It's not only Dan, look up, it's Dan, look back. Look back and see what God has done. Last night I was reading Pilgrim's Progress. Anybody familiar with this book? It's a great book, isn't it? Gosh, if you're discouraged, read this book. It's awesome. And I can't understand how the author of it, John Bunyan, wrote it before he got to heaven. His perspective is so amazing. But it's an allegory, and it's this man, Christian, I mentioned earlier, and he's on the road to heaven and he meets with a bunch of traps on the way and there's a path that he's supposed to follow to get to heaven but he sees that the path is hard so at one point there's this nice looking meadow and he jumps the fence we'll get off the path we'll go through that easy meadow and we'll be okay and things aren't okay and that's where I told you he ends up the prisoner of a giant whose name is despair And he's imprisoned in a castle called Doubting Castle. And every day the giant despair would come in and whip Christian and hopeful with more despair and more despair. You've been there? And Christian is contemplating killing himself. And his friend, hopeful, who's traveling with him, says this, My brother, he said, to my point about looking back, My brother, he said, Don't you remember how valiant you have been in the past? And by the way, one of the reasons Christian is despairing so much is because he was the one who led his friend off the path, who wanted to go the easier way. So he suffers with the guilt not only for what he's inflicted upon himself, but for what he's inflicted upon his friend. And his friend says, My brother, don't you remember how valiant you have been in the past? Apollyon, the destroyer. From Revelation 9, Apollyon could not crush you, 
nor were you defeated by all the things you heard, saw, or felt in the valley of the shadow of death. Consider all the hardship, terror, and bewilderment you have already gone through. And now you are full of fear? Don't you see that though I am a far weaker man than you by nature, I inhabit this dungeon with you. The giant has wounded me as well as you and has cut off my bread and water as well as yours. I also mourn without the light, but let us exercise a little more patience. Remember how you conducted yourself in front of the men in Vanity Fair and were afraid neither of the chain nor the cage nor even of a bloody death. So let us bear this with patience as well as we can. That was a guy who knew some, knew some pain. And do you hear the reminder, though, to look back, to look back to see what God has brought you through individually, to see what God has brought his people through collectively, not just last year, but time, ancient times. And now the, now the psalmist is going to, to, to uh, finish up with this. He says, when the waters saw you, O God, and I want you to ask yourself, what's he talking about here, waters? When the, this is verse 16. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. You're going to see in just a moment, he's talking about the Israelites as they're making their escape from Egypt. Do you remember this? They were in slavery and bondage in Egypt for hundreds of years. And finally, after a series of amazing plagues, God leads them out of Israel, leads Israel, the nation of Israel, out of Egypt. And as he takes them out, it's so awesome for them that the people of Egypt are saying, here, have some gold as you go. Here are some parting gifts, you know, maybe a discount to to Red Robin or something, like, go, get out and take everything you need with you and don't come back. And just when things are awesome, they see the dust behind them grow. And they hear the rumbling of the chariots, the shouts of the Egyptian army, the most powerful army in the world coming. And they have tickets to red, discount tickets to Red Robin. And what's ahead of them is the Red Sea. What are they? Trapped. Verse 19. Oh God, your way was through the sea. See, we can't see. I can't go back. I can't go forward. Your way, O God, was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. His footprints were unseen, but his fingerprints were all over it. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Jesus has come to occupied Palestine. And slowly but surely, people start to believe that this is the Messiah who's to come. He will be the one who will liberate Israel, finally, from the occupier. 
He will restore the kingdom of glory to David, his father. But then his own people rejected him and he couldn't go back to them. And the Romans crucified him. Trapped. And yet, God made a way that death could not hold him. The grave could not keep him. Oh, grave, where is thy victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? That Jesus, by God's power and grace, Jesus, the Son of God himself, is raised from the dead. And in the midst of that horrible thing, the cross, that is what secures our salvation for all who believe in Jesus. That is, that is how our salvation is secured, that by his blood, we are purified. We are set free. We are not trapped. And the psalmist is calling us to look back on what God has done so that in the midst of our despair, in the midst of our dwelling on our troubles, we can see we have hope. We have the most hope that not even death itself can stop our hope. You tracking? Not even death itself can stop our hope. That's why Paul will say, I think, in 1 Thessalonians, that we grieve not as others grieve who have no hope. Even when someone dies, we believe in Christ, we will see them again. So how do you take hold of this for yourself? Can I encourage you a couple of real practical things? Get to know your God. Get to know your God. He's so good. I know what you're looking at is hard. What I'm looking at is hard. Then I look at what somebody else is going through, and I realize mine's not as hard as I thought. But we've got to focus on the author and perfecter of our faith first, and then that calibrates how we see our troubles. You tracking with me? That when we focus on our troubles and we keep them right here, God looks small, but when we focus on God who is big and awesome, our troubles by comparison. I'm not saying they go away. What I'm saying is that God will give you the strength to persevere by not dwelling, by focusing on him and not dwelling on our troubles. I'm not giving you a, a prescription that I don't take myself. There's a reason I know this psalm. It is like an old friend to me. Because when things go hard, I go into it. And I go right to verse 1. I cry aloud to God. Aloud to God, and He will hear me. Years ago, I was driving home from work, and my best friend who has since passed away, I'm on the phone with him, and I was that same problem where I didn't have a problem speaking. I was moaning and groaning to him about work, and my friend who was from South Africa said, Dan, you hang up this phone right now and you cry out to Jesus. In my car? Pick. So I closed the sunroof, rolled up all the windows, and at first felt quite foolish to mutter, Jesus. And then I felt a shame of my shame. And I thought, I'm in trouble. If I were hanging from the side of a cliff, would I be like, help me, 
No. I would say, help! Help me! And I cried out, Jesus! I am freaking out. I cannot take this anymore. Help me. And with that, some of my pride gets excised. And it makes room for some of his grace to roll in. I want to invite you. Get to know this awesome God. Cry out to Jesus. If you don't know him, come talk to me, please. Because I want to share with you how awesome he is. And if you do know him, and it feels like it's been a long time since you've been with him, come talk to me, please. I go through that same thing. I'm going through it right now. Let's walk this thing together. Just like I read of Christian and his friend Hopeful walking to the celestial city, going together so that we can encourage one another and carry one another and tell you, look back and see what he brought you through and look up and see how awesome he is and get to know this great and awesome God. Would you pray with me, please? Lord God, I ask you, Lord God, for more of your grace and more of your power, more of your spirit, more of your son. That you would make your word come alive to us, that you would make your word come alive in us, that we would stop dwelling on our troubles. And we need you to do it, Lord. And we would start dwelling on your goodness, on your trustworthiness, on your love and on your grace and on your compassion. God, we are but flesh, as your word so graciously reminds us. Have mercy on us, we pray. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen.